All right, everyone, let's uh, begin our time with the word of prayer, then we'll get into it. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we thank you again for your love and goodness to us. We ask that you would prepare our hearts to be receptive to the truth that goes forth this morning, that you would truly speak through me and uh, give hope and encouragement to your people who are here this morning. Again, we thank you for truth. We thank you for your word. Lord, we rejoice in the fact that you have spoken to us. And may every heart in here receive it with gladness, that we may grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, go ahead and open up your Bibles. Open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter. Continue our study this morning. Have about uh, four verses to cover. Trust we'll get through it today. Um, really what Peter's doing here is recapping and concluding all that he has just said in the verses beforehand. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Please follow along as I read. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. So these verses constitute some concluding remarks of the nine verses that went before it. I mean, we were pretty much navigating some really important initial truths regarding spiritual growth. Growth, you could say, in the Gospel. Remember, Second Peter is about growing in the true grace of God. We grow where we are planted. We grow where we are established. And as the Word continues to nourish us, and as the church continues to gather and to teach and instruct and encourage one another and edify one another, we can anticipate much spiritual growth as the Lord does His work in His church. Notice that the first word of this passage is therefore. Right? So therefore, in light of everything that I just have said, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, he says. So of course, what things? Well, all the things that he has just told them regarding the, the call to these churches to grow in the true grace of God. So we went over some very key things and we took a number of weeks to go through those things because they're all worth unpacking because every, everything that Peter says here carries immense weight for the, upon the church. These are things that the church needs to be reminded of often, to internalize, to even memorize, you could say, and constantly put into practice. That is how we grow. We grow by truth, not by our own strength, but by the power of God's Word. And so all of these churches, and the church worldwide even, is called to this very thing, to grow. So without going and rehashing everything that we've already been through, we'll lay the groundwork with some of the very key things that we've learned already. Overall principles. 
that we are to call to mind. Now, if you remember these things, you can look at uh, your past notes or review past sermons, but they were summed up very concisely in this way. The first thing the church needs to be aware of in terms of spiritual growth is what Christ must be. What Christ must be to the church. Of course, we want to understand what Christ is in truth, right? And we understand that from the opening verses. That is what Christ must be to us as He is revealed. And then as we go through these verses, we find another thing. Who Christ must be. Not just what He must be, but who personally He must be to the church. Right, just a few things, right? We, we understand that we have a righteousness that comes from Him. We have a faith that is in Him. We have a grace and peace that is multiplied to us by knowing Him. And of course, as we continue, we find that we have power from Him. Through His abiding presence, He's granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, verse 3 says. We're called to a true knowledge of Him. That is who Christ must be, right? He must be, he must be known truly. It keeps us from conjuring up a Jesus of our own imagination. A Jesus that's a little nicer, right? A Jesus that is a little more tame. But to understand who Christ is, we must know Him as the Scripture presents Him, right? We understand that through Him, we have all these precious and magnificent promises, And so we partake of the divine nature and we also escape corruption that is in the world through lust. See, that's what and who Christ is. For the church to grow, we must never entertain a counterfeit Jesus, but the true Jesus as revealed in Scripture. Even all of the hard truths that we must learn about Him. That He is not only Savior, but that He is Lord, and that He is Lord to the degree that He is the unrivaled King of kings. That command from Exodus is still in play today. You shall have no other gods before Me. And it's a hard truth to take, but the church must embrace it. That Jesus is a Lord that will suffer no competition. And as much as that makes our flesh bristle, in faith, we accept it because that is how Scripture presents Him. And of course, going down, we find also what or who the Christian must be. The Christian is to be an individual, and of course, this this, uh, has some corporate relevance as well, that we are to be Christians who grow in grace, right? So in verses 5, beginning with faith, we apply in all diligence, moral excellence, all the way down to love. So without question, without exception, that is what the church is to grow in. We called that Peter's list of the fruit of the Spirit. Corresponds well with what Paul mentions in Galatians chapter 5. And that is what the Christian must be. But how does the Christian end up being that way? Well, we read on and we find that Christ gives grace. We call that the grace of Christ shown toward the virtuous, right? those who are virtuous in Him, those Christians who desire to walk with God by faith and pursue a righteous life, who want to be godly. And even though that is a daunting task and it should strike us as one, the grace of Christ is more than sufficient for that need. And so we find that that is 
supplied abundantly so that we can grow in Christ and be fruitful, right? And to enjoy His presence in our lives. And Peter closes out, if you look at verse 11, he says that entrance into the kingdom of Christ would be abundantly supplied in that way. He reminds us that God supplies everything necessary for entrance into the new covenant era and that it would be one of blessing, provision, and joy rather than one plagued with doubt and uncertainty and unbelief. See, when he's encouraging these Christians, these are Christians that are facing all manner of persecution from without and within from false prophets. And he's calling them to persevere because the old system is in the process of being brought down to where this church is in a very pivotal time where they are going to enter the kingdom of God in the sense that they are going to enter in its fullness the new covenant era. That the new creation, the new heaven and new earth is going to be brought to bear by the proclamation of the gospel and in the fact that Jesus Christ is going to bring His enemies under His feet. So that is the two-pronged approach that the church has in living out this gospel mandate and walking faithfully with her Savior. And so this morning's sermon, in these concluding remarks, I call this sermon, Dying Thoughts, Living Truth. right? Because we recognize that when Peter is speaking these words, verses 12-15, through 15, he is giving his final thoughts. He references the fact that he is about to die, but he is about to lay aside his earthly dwelling. And so we do well, as we mentioned before, to pay attention to what he has to say. And one thing to point out is that not all dying words are significant. Not everything that someone has to say, not every person throughout the world or that has ever lived has profound or insightful or even helpful dying thoughts. But the reason that we want to pay attention to Peter's dying thoughts is the fact that he is an apostle. That his dying thoughts happen to be the inspired Word of God. And so it benefits the church immensely to pay attention to it. Because here we see the heart of Peter. We see the heart of an apostle of Jesus Christ. And it's my hope that as we continue to grow in him, these things that Peter says will be true of us in great measure. And here's the startling truth. The truth that sometimes we don't like to think about, so I'm going to bring it up this morning, because what, what better place to be made uncomfortable than Sunday morning sermon, right? Here's the truth. All of us, one day, are going to die. We are going to die. Some, some of you may feel the aging process more than others in here, but each of us is in the process of dying, even as, even as we live, even as we enjoy life, even as we see every Thing that we experience in this world in some roundabout fashion, a gift of God, as believers, we are still aging. We are still experiencing decay. And we don't always like thinking about that. And though we know we have resurrection life in us that transcends death and will ultimately culminate in a glorified body, each of us either has at some point or should be often wrestling with the reality of growing older and knowing that, as Peter says here, our departure is at hand. What a way of putting it. Yeah, our departure is near. It's imminent. I'm going to be moving on soon. And when people know that death is drawing near, any person who is mindful of eternal things and wants to be a good steward of those things and live a, leave a spiritual legacy behind, 
will engage in something on a spiritual level, level called the settling of affairs. The settling of affairs is a phrase that, is, that, is, that should be known well. We do it at least on the material level if we, if we want to be prepared, if we want to be wise, if we want to be a blessing to our family and friends, we settle affairs. Right? And that can express itself in a variety of ways. Do you have anything in your life that is open-ended, especially if you know that you're going to die? Do you have anything in your life that is open-ended, could come in the form of, say, a relationship or business adventures, other responsibilities? But many of these things stand out as important things that we take care of before we die. And believers should take this very seriously. We should be mindful in light of our departure, in light of our imminent departure or impending departure, we're all going to die, of what we are leaving behind. Right? What we leave behind in terms of Christ, in terms of the Gospel, in terms of a, a spiritual legacy. Now, in some sense, legacy is overrated. I'm not up here telling you that you, would want, you want people so badly to remember you. No, the thing in view is you want to live your life in such a way that people remember the example that you set. People remember that you pointed to Christ. The fact that people remembered that you were a good steward of the Gospel. In short, you want people to remember the truth that you taught. The truth that you proclaimed. Not so much you, yourself. I think that puts things into perspective. See, we think of things so much in the immediate sense. You know, we just some of us just want to make sure that we've aired our grievances that we want to know who's offended us, and that we've deleted our internet browsing history. Sometimes we live life in such a petty fashion that that's all we think about. That's a life lived in fear. Fear of what other people think. It's not a life lived in faith. That's not a life lived in view of eternal matters and eternal truth. But hopefully, each of our respective looming demise demises will cause us to shift into matters of greater importance. And of course, those are things that we don't want to leave to someone else. They are things we want to leave for someone else. As we've already mentioned, they come in many forms. You know, you think of maybe the fact that you need to make peace with someone. Those are things that weigh on us. We don't want to leave at war with other Christians, much less unbelievers. You want to be a peacemaker. You want to leave a peacemaker. You want to die a peacemaker. You want to seek, perhaps you need to seek forgiveness and restoration of a relationship before you die. You think about, again, personal investments, right? Maybe you want to leave a heritage for your children. Right? You want to leave them something. You want to know where all of your assets are going. Who's going who's gonna to take all your stuff when you die, right? It can take a lot of work. And then going back to the spiritual thing, right? This is what Peter has in mind. This is most important for us. What are we leaving spiritually? What assets are we leaving to others? That can take a lot of work. But here's the point. When it comes to the settling of affairs, as Peter is doing in this passage, it becomes one of those things that demonstrate what is most important to you? What is on your mind when you know that death is near says what is most important to you. It tells a lot about you. It says a lot about the kind of life 
you lived. And it says a lot about the kind of life you desire others to live. Especially if you are of the mind that you want to set a spiritual example for others. That's what the settling of affairs points to. And so when we look to Peter, what do we find that he is concerned about? Well, he is concerned that those to whom he ministers remember the truth. Remember, a huge theme in 2 Peter is remembering, calling to mind, focusing on truths that were delivered. Provides a huge encouragement for the church to persevere through all kinds of trials. In the past week, we've talked a lot about the perils of not remembering, especially using Israel as an example of what happens when you forget, to truth, forget the truth or fail to call to mind the wonderful deeds of the Lord in providing for you and delivering you. Think about Israel's case. Remember, deliverance from slavery, sustaining them with His presence as they wander in the wilderness and even empowering them to go and take the promised land, right? The land is yours. There may be giants there, but the Lord is with you. Go and take the land. It's amazing to think that even though the Lord demonstrated His faithfulness to them generation after generation, that, that so much of what He did was forgotten. Right? Kings included. Priests included. They failed to remember. They failed to call to mind the deeds of the Lord. They failed to call to mind the truth about Him. And they failed to pass it along faithfully to the next generation, though His presence remained with them through all those centuries. And no doubt with the New Covenant community, Peter shares this concern. He does not want his people to forget. As believers, we should have that desire for one another that we do not forget. That we do not forget what the Lord has done for us. That we do not treat the truth in such a casual way that we neglect its power in our midst that we neglect how it applies to every area of life. And so, dying thoughts, living truth. And I'll go through five of these because they're, they're kind of blended throughout the passage, but I will give five of Peter's dying thoughts and they pertain to living truth. So get your pens ready because I'll go through all of them right now. Dying thought number one, living truth is prepared. Living truth is prepared. It's ready to be proclaimed. Think of it that way. And even in 1 Peter, we were called, we were admonished to be ready, right? Be ready to give an answer. Dying thought number two, true, living truth is established, right? It's a bedrock of the church. It's a fixture within the people of God. Dying thought number three, the truth is powerful. It's life-changing. It, as Peter says, stirs us up. Stirs us to life, but also stirs us to action. Dying thought number four. Living truth is urgent, right? We don't treat it passively or casually. Well, we find that Peter's words here are, are words of urgency. But he desires to minister to this church with his remaining days in such a way that the truth can be put to work and continue to be put to work, which leads to dying thought number five. Living truth endures. Living truth endures. So you got all those? Living truth is prepared, it's established, it's powerful, it's urgent, and it endures. So let's get into the meat of the text. In verse 12, 
He says, therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. So there's that first key, right? Is that living truth is prepared. And even though Peter knows that he is about to die, he says that he will always be ready. Such, so, so key to Christian growth, so key to gospel life are the things that he just mentioned. But he says, as long as I am here, I will always be ready to remind you of these things. So there is no lying down here for Peter. Though he knows his death is imminent, he continues to stand at the ready to proclaim and minister the word of the gospel. Here is a man who is not resigned from his post. See, this is not the same Peter who walks on water and yet takes his eyes off the Lord and starts to sink. Rather, he is steady. Until he dies, he will be ready, prepared, and prepared to remind the church of these things. And of course, these things is everything that has gone before it. told some of you this story before, but when I read this text, I, I, I think of my, uh, my grandpa, and I believe it was even up to within a couple months before he passed away, he was faithfully at the ripe old age of 91 teaching at an old folks' home. He'd go, he'd sit, he'd sit and he would explain the gospel. He called people to Christ until he died. And it actually took cancer and pancreatic surgery to finally take him out. And I think, man, what are the excuses we make? Excuses we make to pass it on to someone else or to remain uninvolved, but he would go and take the gospel to them on Sunday mornings, and usually my uncle would play the guitar, sing some songs, and then he would preach. And even though Gramps knew he would be passing away soon, he never really retired from teaching Scripture. All he thought of was how he could make Christ known following well the example here of the Apostle Peter. But here's the point. You see, no matter where you are in life, we find that the Gospel is no less powerful preached from a wheelchair as it is from a pulpit. Truth, Gospel truth is Gospel truth. And the Gospel, no matter how it is preached, no matter where it is preached, is always the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And so we see this belief from Peter continuing to remind these churches of these fundamental truths. And he even says this, even though you already know them, right? the fact that they already know them is not the main point. right? We don't learn one thing and then forget it or just think that it's old hat and no longer carries any relevance and then advance in some other form of theological knowledge and inquiry. No, we use these initial truths to build up upon, always going back to them, always reminding ourselves of their truth and abiding significance. See, no truth in Scripture will ever be passe, right? It will never be truth that expires. It always has relevance and it always has power. You realize that most of the teaching that is done here is reminding you of what you already know. Sometimes you kind of get self conscious about it. When I'm up here preaching the word, I assume by and large that if you are believers in Jesus Christ, most of what I'm teaching you are things that you perhaps have heard before. These are truths that hopefully you know when we look for different ways to communicate things. We find different illustrations throughout life that point to these eternal truths. 
But the thing that never changes is the truth itself. And I am amazed, and we should all be amazed and a little confounded about so-called Christians who, after many years in the faith, suddenly find that they are no longer interested and are even sometimes offended at the notion of joining the people of God on the Lord's Day for corporate worship. Got to go sing these same old songs. Got to go hear the pastor drone on about this same old gospel. Same old gospel? Are you kidding me? The gospel that gave you life? The gospel that has power to raise the dead? The gospel of Jesus Christ and His kingdom? But here's the saying, oh, I've already heard these things before. I've heard it all. I know these things. Isn't it amazing that once we believe we've mastered something, that somehow we relegate it to secondary importance? That once, if we've truly mastered something and have paid attention to it, do we somehow stop loving it or stop paying attention to it? Let me tell you something. If you have really heard it all, then you're telling me that you have forgotten it all. Because if you're listening, you will never have that attitude toward the Word of Christ. We are not to grow callous toward the truth. We do not become bored with God. And of course, that puts the responsibility on anyone who teaches to show you how the truth is applied because even though there may be one meaning, there are many applications. And we never want our teaching to remain on a milk level, right? We've, we've talked about that in past weeks. We want to progress to meet at some point. But every member of the church should impose upon himself the responsibility of reminding himself and others of the truth so that that truth can be preserved and passed on. And there's also a lot of personal encouragement that comes with that. We go back to the basics. right? We go back to what makes it all possible. We've done that in the, in the preceding weeks, have we not? In the former weeks where we've just reminded ourselves of the most basic truths of the Christian faith. Among them, that it is all of grace. We are where we are in Christ because of God's grace. Because of free and unmerited favor that has been set upon us. And it is into that very light that God has called us. We always go back to the basics. We always go back to the foundational truths. So we never think that this is somehow dependent upon us. But we don't stay. We don't remain with milk. We, we build truth upon truth, precept upon precept. And in doing so, we are able to grow from moral excellence to love, just as Peter instructs. And this is nothing unique to Peter. Right? This is nothing unique to Peter. In Philippians 3.1, we read this from Paul. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again, things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. It's one of the reasons we remind each other. Right? It's one of the reasons we are, we are prepared. We are prepared with the truth. Because it is a safeguard to us. Right? Adding those layers of protection. Rebuilding those doctrinal walls, if you will. Because then Paul goes on, beware of dogs, right? Beware of those who are trying to infiltrate and spoil the gospel and pervert the message of the cross. He does the same thing in Colossians chapter 1. He says this, verse 3, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you have previously heard in the word of truth, right? Previously heard. You've already heard this. The gospel which has come to you, 
just as in all the world, that is the Roman Empire, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. So, what is, so Paul begins uh, that, with that word to the Colossians, and what does he continue to do as Colossians goes on? Reminds them of the sufficiency of the gospel, the supremacy of Christ, right? And the, and the joys and the benefits they reap from that. It's reminding them. Reminding them of, the, what the, of what they already know. Consider John in the first epistle of John, chapter 2. He says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do not know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So just because the apostles have taught these things before doesn't mean that they stop teaching it and then go on to the next thing. No, part of faithful communication of God's Word is to show how all of these truths link together and how they all uh, ultimately point to the person and work of Jesus Christ. How it all points to the Gospel of the Kingdom. And same thing, right? You read the next verse in 1 John. He says, For... Certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the, the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. People have crept in unnoticed. Right? There's that warning. You link what the Apostle says here, and then of course, going on, also with what other Apostles say. People have crept in unnoticed. And you've got to be very, very careful of that. But how do we show care? How do we exercise caution? By reminding ourselves of the truth. So necessary, so important to the growth and stability of the church. We cannot forget the truth. They've crept in unnoticed. Peter reminds them of the same thing in chapter 2 of this, of, this, uh, of this book. He says that these false prophets, verse 1 of chapter 2, will secretly introduce destructive heresies. See, you would think that the reason they have to secretly do this is because the, the truth is so well known and established that if they preach this out loud, they will be found out. They will be discovered. And so they have to do it in secret. I mean, that is a reminder to us of how the truth of the Gospel should come to dominate and be a welcome staple of the church. And we see it as something we cannot live without. And so that's why he says, I will be ready to remind you of these things even though you already know them. So never treat these initial central truths as passe. Never get bored of them. Never get tired of them. Never, never fail to be encouraged by them. And we continue, continue in this text. Go down to dying thought number two, that living truth is established. So the church that has been established in the truth wants to be reminded by it. So, of course, the question is, how do we know that the truth has been established in our midst? As Peter says, the, church, the truth is present with you. So how do we know that the truth is present with us? And I'm not talking in an on-and-on fashion, but that the truth is a resident of a local church. That it, that it lives here, that its quarters are within the church. I think we can draw a few things from it, and of course we understand that for the truth to be here at all, it has to be believed. That's where it begins, right? Begins with faith. Begins with the church believing the gospel. 
And so this is the one we draw immediately from the text, is that we refresh our memories of it. And often, the very, the very fact that the truth is remaining or is, with, is present with the church is a truth that is called to mind. You know, even considering the things that Peter's mentioned from verses 3 to 11, do we take time and say, wow, am I, am I actually bringing these things to mind? Am I considering them? Are they present in my life? Am I seeing those as key to growing in grace? That those are the things that, as Christ's Spirit empowers me, I pursue. We want to be a church where the truth is established and where there is a desire to see those truths repeated often. Here's another thing. We know that we are established in the truth if we are able to speak it openly. We think, well, that's, well, that's obvious, but I don't think it always is. Sometimes, sometimes that's where it begins, right? Where the church is ashamed of the gospel that it's called to proclaim faithfully. I think this is very much a cultural issue with the church today. A lot of people within the church are afraid to speak the truth. We're afraid of condemnation in the court of public opinion. We are afraid of speaking it because we're fearful as to how another person or group of people may receive it, especially other believers. I mean, if you are afraid to speak the truth in church, you are going to be afraid to speak it everywhere else. When it comes to having to confront someone with the truth, we find at times where we're just, we're just, we're just beside ourselves with fear. Afraid of man, fear of man, how they'll receive it, how they'll respond. You know, we may hem and haw over these things all day long. It may be a very simple truth. It may be something very obvious, even very simple. But we all have our blind spots. And that's why we are the body of Christ. We are to remind ourselves of these things, to point out those blind spots so that we grow together. Yet we're afraid how the other person will take it. You know, most of us have probably been dealing with this problem for years. We're just afraid to speak the truth. And we, have that, we may have that burden to share something with another individual, hopefully out of concern for them, and not just because what they're doing is bothering us. But then you'll find that as time goes on and you refrain from speaking the truth to them in love, everyone else in the church knows what's going on in their life except them. Because you had to get it off your chest, right? We take that approach, hey, I need to tell you about this other brother or sister over here so, so you can pray for them. I mean, are you really doing it for that reason or just so you can air your grievances because you're too much of a coward to actually go and confront the person themselves and say, hey, I've noticed this about you. It's been on my heart and I want to help you. I want to walk in love towards you. It's crazy. I think it's out of control. And the whole church knows this person's business and we're all talking about this person and no one, and no one had, a, had a care or love in their heart to actually go and tell this person themselves. It's really sad when it comes down to that. You don't want a church full of cowards who are unwilling to confront other people with the truth. And we get, I, I, I've mentioned before, I take every chance I can to remind you guys of this because I don't want Emmaus Road Reformed Baptist Church to be a church full of chickens. Right? We're, just, we're just a bunch of chickens and we can't tell each other anything because we're cowardly and then on the receiving end, we're just too sensitive to hear the truth. We want the truth from the pulpit because that's truth generally spoken, right? I am, I'm, I'm preaching points to you from the text, and I think sometimes on the receiving end, you think, oh yeah, that's, I, I can take that generally, right? Because I'm just sort of 
looking across at all of you, but if I came up to you, if I walked down that aisle and got in your face and said, hey, bro, you've got a serious problem, then suddenly it's personal. Well, let me tell you, it's all personal. The gospel is personal. All biblical truth is personal. And we best start receiving it that way. Be able to gird up our loins, so to speak, and receive truth. Instead of being afraid of our own shadow and living in constant fear of other people's perception of us. See, but truth is not simply a pulpit issue. You don't leave the truth to the preacher, right? In some sense, preaching is, is, is the codifying of the doctrine that Emmaus uh, Road Church holds. And we set the example of, of that doctrine. But it prevails upon every church member to proclaim biblical truth, to follow an example of faithful preaching and teaching so that each of us can disciple others. It starts here, but this is just the starting point in the corporate sense. This is where truth goes forth. But you are then to take that truth and then go and admonish and encourage others with it. And it seems sometimes that it's the job that no Christian really wants to do, and yet it's clearly the job that every Christian is called to do. We're all called to that. This is the foundation. foundation of what we teach, yes, begins here, but what it's meant to do, among other things, is lay the groundwork for the rest of the church, for the rest of the truth, truth which each one of us is responsible for believing, nurturing, cherishing, and passing on. So here's another one. The truth is established when it is enjoyed. See, the truth gives us life. It gives us life and continues to stir us up, as it were, to stir up our affections, borrowing from Peter's language of stirring up, that we may cherish the truth more. The truth is not just to be heard. The truth is to be loved and enjoyed, especially when it's brought forth clearly. Truth established is truth enjoyed. Let me give you an example of this. Some of you going over to his house later on today. If you've ever been to Jeremy's house, he's a pretty hospitable guy. <laughs> if you've ever been to Jeremy's house, Jeremy has a garden. And Jeremy loves his garden. Jeremy grows this garden. He waters the garden. He loves his garden. It's one of the first things you'll find out if you spend an afternoon at his house and an evening into the wee hours of the morning. Jeremy loves his garden. And if you want to see how much Jeremy loves his garden, run through the garden recklessly, <laughs> trample on the plants, or watch what happens when someone tries to pluck a flower from that garden. Watch what happens when a dog tries to, quote-unquote, water the garden, or if, a, well, or if a human tries to water the garden. And then you will see how zealous Jeremy is for his garden. Why? Because Jeremy loves his garden. Because not only did Jeremy grow to put in the labor to grow that garden, he wants you to enjoy the garden as well. He wants you to enjoy it. It's not just for him, it's for, it's for those who he entertains. It's those he shows hospitality toward. So if you ever go to Jeremy's house, again, much of the afternoon, weather permitting, will be spent in the garden to enjoy it so that you too may come to love Jeremy's garden. Now this is a good picture of how we treat the truth. We are brought to life by it. We continue to 
be nurtured by it, grow by it, but we also guard it, work in its soil, not only so that we can enjoy life in Christ, but so that we can enjoy life in Christ with other Christians, so that we can love the garden together. But we also need to guard it against intrusion. We need to guard the truth against perversion. We need to guard the truth against being trampled on and treated as simply common. But we are called to enjoy it together. So fourthly, of course, it's by no means an exhaustive list, but truth established is a truth that is preserved. Very general statement, but the idea is that truth is passed on. It is truth faithfully taught, right? The truth is not going to be established if it is not passed on to others. We'll treat this in, in a very uh, concise way. But think of 2 Timothy 2.2. The things which you have heard from me in, my, in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. I love this. This is one of my favorite verses in Scripture because you have in one verse a multiplicity of generations. Right? Five generations actually. Paul got it from Jesus. Paul taught it to Timothy. Timothy is supposed to teach other faithful people who will teach others also. That is truth preserved. If the truth isn't preserved, then we can hardly say that the truth has ever really been established. Because when something is established, going back to our garden metaphor, it means that it has taken root. But it is part of the earth there, right? That its roots are in the soil, and when you water the soil, it is soaking up the water. That, and it's hard to pluck out. That's how you know that something has been truly established. And so the church must have a desire by reminding itself constantly of the truth to preserve the very truth by which it is upheld. So look at verse 13. So we have living truth is prepared, living truth is established, and living truth is powerful. It's verse 13. Living truth is powerful. He says in verse 13, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. Right. Stir you up by way of reminder. Let's concentrate on the, the, the latter half of that part of the passage. This, this issue of stirring up. Right. Typically, we think of being stirred up as, as, as being exasperated, right? being, being stressed out, right? being high-strung. But, but, but in this case, we understand it as a good and desirable thing. We want to be roused from our sleep. If we're, if we're a Christian and we've fallen asleep at the wheel or we've been careless or lazy, what better way to be stirred up than to be reminded of the truths of the Gospel? Those truths that had been handed down by the Apostles' teaching. This word stir up is an important word. In John 6, 16-18, the disciples, as is often the case, they are out on the sea in a boat, says this, when, Now when evening came, His disciples went, out, went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. In verse 18, the sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Same Greek word used here, a stirring of the sea, right? You would find that the, a stirring of the sea in this manner, one would, one would find it hard to stay passive or, or, or sitting down or 
asleep, right? How can one sleep in the middle of the storm? I mean, even though in another episode, Jesus was asleep in the boat, but Jesus was still in the boat. But it's hard to be, it's hard to be unattentive when you are stirred up. And that is precisely what Peter intends to do. And that is what we are all called to do toward one another. We stir one another up. That's why the writer of the Hebrews says, let us consider how we can stimulate one another or stir one another up to love and good deeds. Right. And the thing is that the, the, the Hebrews, Jewish Christians, are facing the exact same scenario that, that Peter's audience is, right? The impending visitation of the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment to destroy the city of Jerusalem. And he says, hey, keep going. Keep doing what you're doing. Don't grow slack. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Stir one another up as you see the day approaching. Don't let the fact that Christ is going to appear and put down His enemies cause you to be lazy or careless. In fact, quite the opposite. Be attentive. Be alert. Because... There's going to be a shakedown, and that which is not shaken will, be, will, will remain. And that which is not shaken will be stirred up. So that's meant to motivate. That time of judgment even is meant to motivate Christians to persevere, to continue on in showing one another love and good works. And we've got to be stirred up, stirred up from our sleep, stirred up from our laziness, stirred up from our immaturity, stirred up from our sinful habits, to put all these things aside. That's why Ephesians 5.14 says, for this reason, it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. you know, Peter's already warned us of a sort of spiritual myopia, right? Some of us are spiritually asleep, right? Some of us suffer from a sort of spiritual sleep apnea where we've kind of fallen asleep and we've just stopped breathing got to shake one another, maybe a couple slaps in the face, metaphorically speaking, to, to arouse us and to awaken us to the reality that there is a gospel to be preached and there is a kingdom to advance. And that is not done by not paying attention to the very gospel call. So to be stirred up, right? To be stirred up is to be awake to the truth. To be stirred up is to be alert to the truth. To, to be stirred up is to be aware of truth. And to be stirred up is to be attentive toward truth. Listen to what preacher Ian Paisley says. He says, The church of Jesus Christ is largely asleep like a great bedroom. And you've all the Christians in bed and they're all sleeping and they're saying, please don't wake me up. I want to sleep on. And of course, when God starts to operate a revival, people cannot sleep. You can't sleep in the church when the Spirit of God awakes the people, end quote. And how does the Spirit of God wake His people? By bringing the Word of truth to bear in their lives. By stirring us up. It's only done by God's truth. We don't want to be stirred up by something else. By, by the latest clever theological construct, the latest philosophy, the latest secret doctrine that we've been unaware of for the last 2,000 years. No. It's by truth. Old truth. The truth once for all delivered to the saints. That's what we are called to be aware of. Look at the text again. 
knowing, verse 14, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. So, coupling that with as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, right? So Peter sees his, his, his death coming, and in that sense, dying thought number four, living truth, is urgent, right? There is a sense of urgency within, within the, the heart and mind of the Apostle Peter. He knows something is going to happen, and it says that even the Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to him, right? And we see this from the Gospel of John. In uh, chapter 21, verse 19, right? Peter's, Peter's talking to Jesus. And Jesus responds to him, you know, hey, one day someone's going to take you by the hand and lead you where you don't want to go. Right? Someone's going to stretch out your hand. In verse 19 of that chapter, he says, now this he said signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. That's Peter. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, they're going to crucify you. Now, follow me. Right? <laughs> I mean, how else can one be, even an apostle, be encouraged knowing the kind of death he would die, a cruel form of punishment, than for Christ to tell him, follow me, Peter. Follow me. And sometimes, yeah, following Jesus means dying for him. But that's a comfort to the church because we've already died with him. And we've been raised to life with Him. Jesus tells Peter something similar in John 13, 36. Simon Peter said to Him, Lord, where are You going? Jesus answered, where I go, You cannot follow Me, but You will follow later. Oh, You will. Right. You, will follow, you will follow Me later. And of course, Peter, as the uh, tradition goes, did not feel that he was worthy to be crucified in the same manner but his Lord was. And so he told the Romans, Crucify me then upside down. And so it was. Peter died a martyr's death. But the Lord made it clear to him that he would die in a particular way. And he knows probably through a death sentence perhaps. There's many directions to go with this. We don't have to do that today. But the fact remains is that Peter knew that the end of his earthly life was near this, this, this earthly, that he was going to put aside his earthly tabernacle. It was imminent. It could happen any day. But we have this comfort from 2 Corinthians 5. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God and a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, and we do, longing to be clothed with our, with our dwelling from heaven, and as much as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. This is why the Christian does not have to fear death. Because it's all going to be swallowed up by life. We know that death even now is a defeated enemy waiting, awaiting its final execution. Death itself is under a death sentence. And so even though we know we will die someday, we can treat even our impending death with a sense of godly urgency to advance the gospel and the kingdom of Christ in as much as He equips and empowers us to do so. Now listen to verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 5. Now He who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge, therefore being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. But of course, to be absent from the body is to be present, uh, to be present with the Lord. And so Peter 
has this sense of urgency. And so he says in verse 15 that he will be diligent that at any time after his departure you will be able to call these things to mind. So he didn't look at death and say, okay, it's time for me to retire. It's, some for, it's time for someone else to take up the mantle. No, he says, oh, now that I know that this is the case, I, I now need to be diligent to make sure, I, I take this diligent as, as, as Peter seeking to enumerate as much gospel truth as possible to invest as much as he is able with his remaining time on earth so that the church will benefit, so that the church will be able to cement these terms, these, these important truths, so that they will not forget. He just wants them to be able, after his departure, to, to call those things to mind. That is the heart of Peter. It should be the heart of every Christian. right? Not that people remember us, but they remember the truth that we proclaim. And that goes to, point, to dying thought number five. So, one is that the truth is, living truth is prepared, it's established, it's powerful, it kind of wakes us up, it is urgent, so we use the time uh, well, responsibly, so that others may benefit, and of course, dying thought number five simply is this, living truth is truth that endures. And so we find in verse 15, I will be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. So even though Peter will die by the cross, he is diligent so that the church can continue to live by it. What a blessed irony. The very thing that, church, that, that, that Peter will die by is the thing that the church will live by. It is the word of the cross. And so it is our responsibility as well, using Peter as our example, to invest the time remaining so that those entrusted to our spiritual care continue to grow and thrive and persevere through all opposition. Each of us has that responsibility. So think about that even in, even in the most common relationship with your spouse, with, with your kids. Ask yourself, and ask yourself often, am I bringing these truths to mind? Am I reminding my wife Men, this falls on you especially. Am I reminding my wife of the truth of the Gospel? Am I reminding my kids over and over and over again of the truth of the Gospel, of the Lordship of Christ, of the grace of God? Right. All those things and more. We are called to that very thing. You know, if you read in John chapter 14, I think Peter's audience perhaps is thinking the same thing. They understand that Peter is going to depart soon. He's going to die soon. And, you know, they, they may be troubled, right? What, what are we going to do without the apostle? What are, we, what are we going to do without him teaching us? Right. I think for that answer, we go back to John 14. And in verse 1, Jesus says this to his disciples. And they know he is going to depart soon, right? So you see the parallel there. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Why would Jesus say such a thing? Well, because their hearts were troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And so as Peter is communicating here, that's the same foundation. Believe in God, believe in Christ. Peter is zealous to communicate to them these key truths in such a way that they will remember it. And yet, Peter in no way 
is relying on his work on himself for the survival of the church. He is in no way telling the church, hey, I am, I am the key to this. I, I am the key to your survival. I am the key to your growth. Not at all. But he is, as long as he is alive, pointing them to the very key to perseverance and life. Jesus does the same thing. How does he encourage his disciples? He promises the Holy Spirit. I am going to go away, but when I do, I am going to send the Comforter. I am going to send the Holy Spirit, and He is going to bring to mind to you all truth. He is going to guide you in all truth. The truth that I have taught you. That's why the disciples could preach with such power as we see in the book of Acts. I mean, imagine walking with Jesus for three years, seeing all these miracles, sight to the blind, the lame walking, the dead rising, the gospel of the kingdom preached. And then suddenly Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. I'm going to be put to death and then I'm going to rise after three days. But I'm going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. So what happens when Jesus leaves? What's going to keep this mighty work of God going? Questions answered, right? I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the Word of God. And the same Spirit that was present with the apostles is now present with the church today. And so the church then may be wondering, well, what are we going to do? The apostles are dying out. Many of them are being put to death. What are we going to do? Who is going to continue teaching and instructing us? Who is going to continue giving us truth from God Himself? Well, the answer, God Himself (laughs) through His Word and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But here's a good thing. Even though, here's a good thing to know. Even though we are called and held responsible to pass on truth, an enduring truth, make sure that those under your spiritual care know that they're not dependent upon you. Do not make them dependent upon you. Do not present yourself as if you're the only one who has all the answers. Right? It's a good lesson to walk in humility and to walk in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. So that those under your spiritual care know that you are not a self-made man. Right? That you are who you are by the grace of God and that everything you have is a gracious gift from Him. Again, be, be, be a person who exemplifies grace. Because it is that life of grace that really puts on display an enduring truth. Never be that person who thinks, oh man, what are they going to do? What are they going to do when I leave? Surely they will fall. No, if you, come, if you are constantly pointing them to the empowering of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, they will be fine. <laughs> Think about this. Think Proverbs 13.22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Think of that in spiritual terms. Leave a spiritual inheritance to your spiritual children. One of, one of grace. One that is filled with, gospel, with the gospel and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. I'll close with this uh, quote by Richard Baxter in his book, Dying Thoughts. He writes this, Words and actions are transient things, and being once past are nothing, but... The effect, on them, the effect of them on an immortal soul may be endless. And that's exactly what Peter is identifying here. Those, those things, right? The, the effect is found in the enduring truth that is passed on so that we are able to call them to mind. Again, not a passing thought, 
but a deliberate focus on the truth that has been delivered to us. So focus on that truth. Focus on that living truth. Though they are dying thoughts, they give abundant life to the church. And I pray, Lord, and I do know that God is gracious to give us the strength to be able to call those things to mind and to continue to pass them on. So let us not be a forgetful church. Let us be a church that remembers. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your kindness, your goodness to us, all the love that you give us, and we can get through these, uh, these important verses this morning. Uh, dying thoughts from a man, precious apostle Peter, facing imminent departure. And yet, we find him diligent. We find him hand to the plow, uh, pointing out these important truths by which we live. Truths prepared, established, powerful, urgent, and enduring. And we do pray, Lord, that this living truth will be abundant in our midst, that we will take the time not only to listen to it, but to pray on it, to see it applied, to be diligent with it, and to be wise with it, Lord. We, we want to understand how to put it to good use, and we can't do that without Your Spirit. Lord, may we uh, be a church that is unapologetic with it, that we, uh, that we are compelled to proclaim Your name because You have called us to it, and because we love You, we treasure Your Word, if there is any fear of man, may we repent from it, and may we fear God. And rather than fearing man, may we love man. May we, may we love our, whether brother and sister in Christ or whether unbeliever, may we have the love for them as a fellow image bearer to speak the truth in love and yet to speak it boldly and clearly and with conviction, with, a, with an urgency, Lord. And may that truth be accepted so that it will endure that we can pass it on to the next generation and see that generation pass it on to the one following it. Lord, we want to be good stewards of Your Word. We want to be a church that hears, well done, good and faithful servant. That we did not put Your Word aside to pursue other things, but that we believed it. We believed it in all of its life-giving revelation and presence. And that we sought to honor You by passing it on. So please help us in that regard, Lord, and help us to walk humbly and dependent upon You as uh, we know that a great task lay ahead. And not only, Lord, do we want to live well, uh, but as in the fashion of Peter, we also want to die well and to live a, leave a spiritual inheritance uh, for those entrusted to our care, that we may be found faithful. Thank you for our Savior. Thank you for His uh, atoning death in our place and on our behalf that we can be clothed in His righteousness today. In Him we continue to rejoice and pray. Amen.